Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My name is Andreas Warner. I'm a record producer, songwriter, and owner of Crazy Chester Records. The theme song you just heard is performed by Wet Willis, Jimmy Hall, and Funky Chester. The Crazy Chester Radio Hour is a weekly music talk podcast featuring an eclectic group of guests with musical hearts, minds, and souls. In many of the episodes will dive deep into the rich history of music Mecca Muscle Shows. My guest today is Dick Cooper. Dick Cooper is a Muscle Shows based photographer and music historian. He started out as a journalist before becoming Barry Beckett's production assistant at Muscle Shows Sound Studios, where he also took many now legendary photos. He was also tour manager for LeBlanc and Carr, the Rossington Band, and more recently Drive By Truckers as well as the curator of the Alabama Music Hall of Fame. Dick Cooper hosts three annual parties on his property that have achieved legendary status and attract a who's who of Muscle Shoals musicians. Dick Cooper is by far one of the most interesting personalities in, in music that I know, and his career has been it's been all over the map musically, not just musically, but especially in music. And uh, we'll get to learn more about him here in a minute. But uh, please welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour, Dick Cooper. How are you, Dick? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you so much for being being my guest today. I uh, It's been always fascinating just to talk to you in person and hear of all your endeavors. In, in music and photography and 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 so forth and I, I thought well you know our listeners will be uh, will be thrilled to hear some of your stories too so maybe we can kind of start in the beginning and kind of uh, you know what what got you connected to music especially I was originally a journalist and I had started with the Birmingham Post Herald in 67 then I'd gone to the Decatur Daily in 69, and then in 72, I came over to the Shoals, and uh, when I arrived in the Shoals, the paper required each reporter to have a feature story for the Sunday edition, and it had to be turned in by Thursday because they printed the interior pages early. Well, Wednesday of that first week, I'm sitting at my desk literally pulling my hair out because I have no idea what I'm going to write a feature story about that's got to be in the next day. And one of the photographers is getting off work, and he comes through, and he sees me perplexed about something, so he asks me, what's the problem? And I told him I didn't have a clue to what I was going to write the first feature story about. 
And he says, well, you want to go to a session? And I said, what's that? So he takes me to fame, and I watch Mac Davis cut Baby Don't Get Hooked on Me, that was produced by Rick Hall, uh, a number one record. So it's kind of interesting that I actually started at the top and worked my way down. Yeah, and just out of curiosity, how do... Uh, how does uh, wrestling bears fit into that story? Well, I have a history of that. Uh, it goes back to the Decatur Daily, and actually before that, back to Birmingham, when my father was uh, the, a photographer. He was a commercial photographer in Birmingham, and he, one of his clients was the Alabama State Fair. And uh, throughout my childhood, we had a booth at the fair every year, and I'd spent a great deal of time there. And in the spare moments when I wasn't handing out brochures or talking to people about uh, pricing for uh, photo uh, shoots, uh, I'd go out and and, uh, wander on the midway and get to meet the Carney folks. And uh, one of the people I met was a guy named Tuffy Truesdale. And Tuffy, uh, at that point in time, had wrestling chimps, but uh, one of his chimps apparently eventually injured somebody, and so he got rid of the chimps and started wrestling bears. And um, so I'm into Decatur Daily. Uh, this is 69, I guess, maybe 70. And, um, and so I've got to go to the fair and do a feature story about the fair that is there in town. And I'm walking the midway, and all of a sudden I run into Tuffy Trusdale. I explained to Tuffy that I've got to write a feature story uh, for the fair, and he says, well, you want to wrestle my bear? And so he takes me around back behind the, the booth, and there's a Cadillac limousine there that's got a metal cage behind the front seat, and there's this black bear leaned up against the rear tire, and he's wearing a collar, and there's a real big heavy chain there. It's just not attached to the collar, and the bear is eating grapes. So uh, I start petting the bear and talking to Tuffy, and sure enough, that night I come back, and I stand in the back of the crowd when he's doing the ballyhoo on the front end, and he starts picking the people who will raise their hand that they'll wrestle the bear, and then I'm the last person he picks. And uh, we go up on stage, and we stand there, and the, he brings the bear out at that point in time, and and then uh, talks a little more to the crowd, and then sells tickets, and people go into the tent to where the wrestling event's going to be. And I wrestled a 450-pound Carolina black bear that had been um, an extra for uh, General Ben during the, his earlier career. Uh, that was the first bear I, I wrestled. I uh, wrote a feature story for the uh, Decatur Daily, and as a result, won the feature story of the year for the Associated Press in Alabama. Uh, after I left the Decatur Daily and came to Florence, I uh, had to do another fair story. I go to the fair, and there's Tuffy, and he offers to let me wrestle his bear again. The only difference was he didn't bother to tell me he'd switch bears. The new bear, Sonny the Roughneck, was a younger bear. He was three years old, and he wasn't particularly well-trained. He was a Kodiak. He stood eight feet tall and was 575 pounds. 
And uh, I wrestled him that night, and uh, but he kind of just wadded me up and threw me in the corner. <laughs> and that was the end to your bear wrestling career? Yeah, that, well, you know, Bear Bryant wrestled one bear. I wrestled two, so that was, that's enough. That, that's a good time to stop. I wasn't, I had nothing broken except my you know, reputation was a little tarnished, but other than that, yeah, and you bounce back from that quite yeah. easily. So uh, you mentioned your dad earlier. Was it him that got you interested into photography? Uh, well, no, actually, he probably uh, got me, kept me away from photography for a long time because he started me working in his darkroom when I was seven years old, developing sheet film back in, this was, you know, 1953. And... Uh, it was a lot of tedious work in a dark room by yourself, and it wasn't something I really liked. Uh, he didn't really teach me much about photography, but the gentleman who had taught him did. Uh, the, the, that guy was named QB Shank, and he'd worked for Tennessee Coal and Iron Company as a photographer. And uh, had uh, my father had also worked there as his apprentice. And... Um, so after he retired, he got to where he hung around Dad's office all the time. And he's the one that showed me how to see light, which is something most people don't know how to do. And uh, that's really the key to photography, knowing what it, how it's going to react with the film. Uh, but uh, he taught me the basics. And then it was after I got in the newspaper business and started walking around with a camera on my shoulder that I developed uh, uh, appreciation for it as an art form. Yeah, and that unique skill set, I guess you were able to benefit from too once once you came here and got involved in the music business. But when you moved to Florence, you were still mainly being a journalist in the beginning, right? Yes, that's right. I had uh, started carrying a 35mm camera when I was a post-herald and did, I was doing mostly police reporting at that point in time. And then uh, I went to the Decatur Daily, and I kind of got away from it because they had photographers that would go out with you. At that point in time, I was covering NASA in the first moon uh, program. And um, so there were plenty of photographers around. They didn't need me shooting pictures. Uh, and then when I came over here, it was a little different situation, especially once I started hanging out at the studios. Uh, it, it was really nice to have a camera there that I could take because my music column needed some kind of graphic each week, so I shot a lot of stuff. Yeah, and what? how did you actually kind of switch sides and became part of music? Well, it, it, it was a guy named Johnny Weicker here who I actually did the first music column on. He had a band called uh, Sailcat, and they had a hit called Motorcycle Mama. And um, Johnny was a very uh, amazing individual. He was uh, from Decatur originally, and he was very, very talented, probably the most talented individual I've ever really met and become friends with. He could do anything except work. He, uh, he would, uh, you know, he would turn the work at, uh, ethic over to somebody else. He and I had had a uh, record label at one time. Well, we did a, a record with a guy named Eddie Hinton uh, called Letters from Mississippi, and nobody in the States would work with Eddie because he had so many problems. Uh, 
But I was able to get him a place with a Swedish record label, Almathea, and um, then I got it out through them into seven European countries. And uh, that was kind of the one thing in the music business here that made everybody go, what? You know, he did what? You know? And people started looking at me uh, because of that. Uh, but I had, uh, you know, I was able to, uh, I really started with LeBlanc Carr, which is Pete Carr and Lenny LeBlanc. They had a hit called Falling. And I began working with Pete doing photographs and press kits and things of that nature. And then when they uh, had their record that they put out uh, uh, that had Falling on it, they went out and toured and they hired me as a road manager. Uh, they went to New York. It was, the record was on Big Tree, uh, which is a subsidiary of Atlantic. And they went up to New York to sign and they dropped in on Jerry Wexler. Um, while they were up there and they told Jerry they were fixing to go out on tour and they asked Jerry who they should, if he had any recommendations of who they should hire as a road manager. And Jerry told them, go back to Alabama and hire Dick Cooper. So they did. And uh, we went out, we happened to ironically be the opening act for Leonard Skidder when their plane crashed. This was five days into the tour uh, of the survivors. Uh, which Street Survivors was the name of the album that they just put out. And um, right, we were actually eating dinner at a seafood restaurant in Pascagoula, Mississippi when the plane went down. And we were listening to cassettes in the car. We weren't listening to the radio. So I didn't find out about the crash until we went to sign in uh, at the hotel in Baton Rouge. And I'm signing the registry and the woman says, oh, by the way, your show's been canceled. And I said, really? Why? She said, because of the plane crash, of course, which you could have knocked me over a feather at that point in time. And uh, we ended up checking into the hotel. We tried to call management. Management did what they should have done, which was go to Mississippi, but this was before the era of cell phones. So all we could do was leave a, a phone message, and they didn't check their messages for several days. So we basically were in a hotel in Baton Rouge that we couldn't afford to leave. And uh, it took three days before they got us enough money for us to check out. Uh, we were booked for 30 gigs of that tour, and that was going to take us up to the first of the year. And so we had, uh, that was October the 20th when the plane crashed. So we had no jobs until the first of the year. And so we had to scramble around, and we did a homecoming show in uh, the Florence Lauderdale Coliseum in December to try to make some Christmas money. And then after the first of the year, we went out with Journey and did a bunch of work with those guys. Yeah, and how did you get involved with Muscle Shoals Sounds? Well, I'd known those guys for a long time, and uh, when uh, LeBlanc Carr went into fame to cut their second record, they got into a big argument and the band broke up, uh, which is not all that unusual, actually. And when that occurred, I went uh, and walked to the car, drove over to Muscle Show Sound, and uh, went in and found Barry Beckett and told him the band had broken up and I needed a job, why didn't he hire me? And he says, well, I'm fixing to go on vacation. Come back next week and we'll talk about it. So the next Monday morning, I'm sitting in Diane Butler's office. Diane was the secretary of the publishing company, waiting for Barry to show up. And when he comes in, 
she has this big wire basket full of tapes that have been sent out in for his consideration for various artists. And she hands him the basket, and I look at Barry and said, if you'll give me a job, I'll take care of that for you. And he handed me the basket, and I was working for him as his production assistant. So would you mind sharing a little bit more about Barry and kind of what kind of person, what kind of boss, I guess, he was a (laughs) friend probably as much. He was a boss, and he was a friend, and he was a really wonderful guy. Barry was from Birmingham as well, and um, we knew a lot of people in common. We didn't know each other when we lived in Birmingham, although we grew up about four or five miles apart. Uh, but uh, we did know a lot of people down there that uh, were common friends with us. And Barry was a keyboard player with the rhythm section, and he was also one of the producers. He had uh, Roger Hawkins had produced a Can Heat album, and they. Uh, uh, produced a, uh, a song called Starting All Over Again for uh, Mel, and Tim. Mel and Tim that was successful. And uh, and he was um, a big, huge guy, about 6'4", probably close to 250, 300 pounds. And uh, they called him Bear a lot but because uh, that seemed to fit. But he was a, a gentle giant when it came right down to it. He was extremely well-versed in music. He was a great arranger. He didn't get near the credit he deserved for his arrangements, in my opinion, because I think really that was his strong suit more than anything else. And uh, he, was, uh, he would do things. He took me to Europe on the Concord. Uh, you know, we went over to—we uh, to, uh, had just done a—, a a record on a guy named Dave Wilkie. And uh, we went over to, uh, we were looking, we were going to Germany to uh, listen to a guy, Peter Maffei was his name. He is now uh, the biggest selling German artist of all time, but at that point in time he was just getting started. So we got to London and he spent a couple of days and so I ran into Dave and he gave me the tour of London. And, and then we got back on the plane and we go to Germany and uh, we follow Maffei around uh, on a tour for about a week. And, uh, and then we didn't, uh, we didn't do the gig and uh, we came home. They flew us over on the Concorde, but they flew us back on the 747. At least they flew us back. Yeah, you didn't have to <laughs> swim. But at around the same time, there were also some really interesting productions uh, coming this way and Jerry Wexler and Barry co-produced quite a few albums and oh yeah and uh, would you uh, mind sharing some, some sure uh, I guess the biggest thing was the Bob Dylan uh, slow train coming album which was in 79 uh, they also did the saved album the following year but uh, 79 was the first Grammy that uh, Dylan had won for the slow train coming oddly enough uh, He's just finishing uh, the bootleg series for 79 and 80, which encompasses those two albums and Shot of Love. And I'll have a bunch of photographs in the booklets on those. But um, Barry and Jerry worked very well together. Uh, Barry was meticulous. He did everything. He crossed every T. He dotted every I. And Jerry knew when to quit. And uh, so that was... um, Therefore, nothing got overproduced. 
Yeah, and it's still a great album. It holds up so well. Oh, Absolutely. yeah, and there were others. We did McGuinn Hillman. Uh, who else did we do? <laughs> we did, quite, uh, I think, four or five together. Yeah. And um, there, uh, then Barry, we also, there were several things that Barry did that didn't come out. We did a Stephen Stills album at Rudy Records out in Southern California, out in L.A., uh, that uh, never got released, and I never did figure out why that didn't get released. Uh, we did a Mavis Staples album, a disco album called Tonight I Feel Like Dancing that uh, was uh, with Jerry. And uh, Mavis is just such a sweetheart, and she's really so easy to work with. It was just uh, amazing. but uh, it, And unfortunately, it, that was on the tail end of the disco craze, and the record really didn't make much of a splash. But uh, she was great to work with. And uh, we did, uh, then Barry did a Kate Taylor album. Kate Taylor is James and Livingston Taylor, Taylor's sister, uh, called It's In There and It's Gotta Come Out. It was a pretty good album. It didn't get the recognition it probably deserved. And uh, we did Starland Vocal Band, and uh, uh, we did a John Prine album called Storm Windows that um, I ended up, uh, what I was doing got into one of John's songs. Uh, there was a, um, a song that was the last one of the session, and Barry was pushing him to finish writing the song. He hadn't finished writing it. Uh, and. Uh, he had some a friend that had come into town and was he was really rather spend time with her than to write a song, but Barry insisted and sent him to the uh, studio. I mean, to the office to finish writing it. And I was in the office on the phone uh, trying to put to, uh, together a party for him because it was the last night of the session. And the second verse of. Uh, this song is I was sitting on my living room rug looking at the numbers of the women that I thought I'd dug. There was one that begged, one that pleased, one God bless me every time I sneezed but oh baby I just want to be with you. And uh, so I kind of wiggled my way into a John Prine song over that. But uh, yeah it was uh, working for Barry was just an exceptional experience. He was we did a Jerry Jeff Walker album that was uh, really nice and uh, called Reunion. And then one day, uh, I'm in up in New York, I forgot what we were doing up there, but anyway, I walked through the lobby of the uh, hotel and there's Jerry Jeff. And so he and I get to talking and he said, what are you doing up here? And I said, Barry and I are up doing something. And he says, is Barry here? I said, yeah. And so. He follows me up to my room. Barry and I have connecting rooms and the doors open. So he walks into Barry's room, climbs over the end of the, the bed. Barry wakes up, raises up, and Jerry Jeff kisses him on the lips, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> but uh, uh, it was, yeah, working in Muscle Show Sound in that era, it was the most incredible workshop I've ever seen. Everybody in that building was focused. Uh, there was nothing that was left undone. Uh, you had uh, secretaries like Diane Butler and Carol Buckins who were just really on top of everything. Uh, you had even Dexter Johnson, Jimmy Johnson's uncle, had a woodworking shop out back. And um, when they, when I got hired, they turned a, a storage room into my office, and he comes in and he does, puts me in cabinets and all kind of uh, 
uh, really custom woodwork job that made my office look great. And uh, but yeah, the, it was uh, we had songwriters that were in there all the time, cut uh, writing great songs for these other artists that are coming through. It was an incredible workshop atmosphere. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that you kind of made it into that song, but there is also a song about you. A little bit later, but would you mind sharing that a little bit? <laughs> yeah, they, uh, there was a band called Gulliver. And uh, it had Scott Boyer the third in it, who would, uh, by that time, Scott Boyer the second and I were sharing a house uh, on uh, uh, Shoals Creek. And um, Scott the third, who I referred to in my best Joyzy accent as Scott the Toyd, uh, was a member of this band, Gulliver, with Gary Nichols, who's now the head of the Steel Drivers, and uh, a couple of other guys. Uh, uh, Jimbo Hart, who's in Jason Isbell's band, and and uh, all these young kids were hanging out. Jason was hanging out there, and uh, 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 Chris Tompkins, who's a great country songwriter now, was hanging out there, and uh, and so uh, Gulliver was trying to get me to work with him, and uh, so they wrote a song about me called Abala Dick Kupa, and. Uh, it's kind of nice having your own your own theme song, especially when it's a real good song. And it is a good song. It's a funky song. Yeah, sure is. Just a few years before that, though, you hit the road again with a band that is still very very popular, and that's the Drive By Truckers. Mm -hmm. How did that come about? Well, I've known Patterson since he was nine years old. Uh, he started uh, talking to me about songs then. And uh, his office, I mean, his father's office was right across the hall from mine. Well, Patterson then uh, grew up, and he had uh, Adam's house cat, and, and uh, he would come to me for advice from time to time. And, uh, and then they started doing Southern Rock Opera, and they did a version of it that didn't work. And then they, I think they tried it a second time, and it didn't work. And then, basically, Patterson asked me, would I come? to Birmingham, they were gonna do it down there in a warehouse that was Cooley's mother-in-law's top floor of her business. And they asked me if I'd just come help, and so I agreed to do that. And we went in, we moved um, some shelving around, and we put a carpet up on a brick wall, and and uh, we did a few things like that. And uh, 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 Earl Hicks had a, a, I think it was an eight-track task cab, that we recorded that album on. While we were doing the recording, we had to work at night because uh, there were a couple of reasons. One, it was Cooley's mother-in-law's business, and if we made a lot of noise, they couldn't work in the floors below us. And also, it's the middle of the summer, and there was no air conditioning up there, so we couldn't work up there in the middle of the day because it was too hot. So we did it, we'd come in at seven o'clock at night when the local office workers would leave and we would leave around whenever we finished but before seven in the morning and uh, while uh, then we'd go back to Cooley's mother-in-law's house and sleep on the floor I slept under the dining room table because if you sleep under the table nobody steps on you and uh, so we did that record over two weeks the middle weekend we had to open uh, a shopping center in Conyers, Georgia, and play in a tent over there. 
So we drove over there and we're coming back and my car broke down and we ended up coming back the rest of the way to Birmingham on the back of a rollback wrecker. And uh, then we got in there and we did the, the uh, record. I ended up, I, the only real recording I did, I helped Patterson do some overdubs one night. But, uh, you know, I was there to take care of business and make sure everything worked. And uh, after the record got released, they gave me co-production on it, which was really gratifying because uh, I didn't go there to be a producer, but they felt what I did was good enough that it deserved a credit for it. And, you know, that's turned out to be one of the classic albums of the last couple of decades. Uh, when they released uh, American Band last fall, uh, the Los Angeles Times did a big piece on Southern Rock Opera and, uh, as a lead-in to the review on uh, American Band. And it's nice when 17 years after the fact your work's still being, you know, uh, appreciated. And also several years later they put out a documentary about that time called Secret to a Happy Ending? Yes, uh, and there's a lot of, about a third of the Secret to a Happy Ending was either done in my car or in my house. Uh, the interviews with Jason and Sean are there, they interviewed me there, and uh, a lot of the driving scenes, there were, there were two different vehicles used during the driving scenes, and you can tell which one was my car, because mine was the one with the cracked windshield. And uh, but yeah, that that's kind of neat. Uh, I've been talking to some people, um, but up until recently, I've been doing photo exhibits with um, uh, in relation to the movie Muscle Shows, the documentary. And uh, I've been talking recently, uh, been approached by some promoters that want me to do a similar thing with Secret to a Happy Ending and the Drive by Truckers. Well, I took them out on the road uh, after the release of that record. We did 72,000 miles in a Dodge van in 14 months, and I have 138 rolls of film and a couple hours of video, including a one video. Uh, the first time we opened for Leonard Skinner down in Florida, um, I was a little busy that day. I was doing front of house sound, I was doing lights, I was selling merch off the back of the table, I was shooting video, and I was fixing guitar strings for Cooley when he'd break them. So I set a camera on a tripod up on the console and turned it on five minutes before the show started. And of course, we're the opening act, it's in a the theater. You, could, you have the seats silhouetted uh, by the stage lighting, and there's three or four heads out there. And then people start coming in, and then uh, the band gets up on stage, and the music starts, and they're all kind of looking at each other like, "What the hell's going on?" You know, because it was really out of the box compared to Skinner. And uh, but by the end of the 30-minute set, everybody's on their feet screaming and hollering. So you end up with a video that's a single camera, no edits, and shows the truckers capturing Skinner's audience. And so I've got that too, and that's going in. I'm looking to do a book on, this, on them uh, that will have both live audio and uh, that some video, and that's be on the video disc. Yeah, and after that, you also were the curator for the Alabama Music Hall of Fame for a long time. Yeah, I was actually curator there on three different occasions. I, I was there uh, before uh, the truckers, I uh, was the original curator there and built most of the exhibits. 
And then I came back. Uh, They went through, I was there for six and a half years. And then it kind of went through, I left and there were some things that didn't work out. And they uh, closed and they reopened and I was asked to come back and I came back. And then that lasted for uh, about a year, I think. And then I left again because I had a whole lot going on that I didn't want to walk away from. And then they closed for a year, and then they reopened, and they asked me to come back and refurbish, and I came back and stayed two years that time. So basically, I've retired from there three times. I call myself a triple retard because of it. But All right. Well, there's another triple threat happening every year. I'm sure you know what I'm referring to. Well, I do three parties a year. Uh, that's been, it's been really kind of neat. Uh, I, this past spring party was uh, videoed by Alabama Public Television, and they did a piece on it. But uh, the parties are kind of uh, uh, over the top sometimes. And my birthday party when I turned 60 was pretty big. I had five bands, including the drive-by truckers and, and the decoys and a bunch of other folks. A band out of Decatur called Head of the Wake. But yeah, we had 350 people for that party. Usually there's, you know, 80 to 100 at any particular party. Yeah, and besides your your photos being used in a lot of projects and the Muscle Shows documentary, you're also, you've been taking it on the road and, and have the, the, uh, the exhibit. I came down to to Birmingham about a year ago, you didn't yeah. want there. Well, yeah, I, I, I've been doing, that was uh, Altamont School. I've been doing a lot of private schools uh, because I have an agent now. And the agent uh, uh, goes, he, he has an in with some of the people in the private education industry. And I did that uh, in Altamont, which is a large private school there. I also did Bayside Academy down in outside Mobile, which was another large uh, private school. And uh, I've also, in addition to that, I've done uh, pieces in uh, Fort Payne, Alabama, and Talladega, Alabama, and stuff like that. Yeah, and if there's anybody out there listening and is interested, I'll uh, get you in touch with Dick, and he'll he'll uh, he'll uh, be a great addition to any event. Absolutely. I, I'm not hard to find. I'm Dick at DickCooper.com. All right, there you go. There you go. Well, Dick. Thank you so much for being my, my guest today. I really appreciate your time and your friendship, and uh, I wish you all the best with all your endeavors. I know there's quite a few things on your table as we speak, so all the best. Yeah, the, uh, the one thing I would like to mention is, is the fact that Malico Records is a, in the process of putting out a uh, CD of instrumental music done by the Swampers, and uh, I did the booklet for that. Great. So we'll look out for that. I'm sure it will be out soon. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, sir. I also asked Dick about one of my all-time favorite artists, musicians, and songwriters, the late, great Eddie Hinton. Dick worked with Eddie for several years, and this is what he had to say about Eddie. Eddie Hinton was a... uh artist who and songwriter and uh, he was very eclectic in many ways he was very problematic in any ways with the uh, managing Eddie Hinton was without question the hardest thing I ever tried to do uh, 
But he was extremely talented as well. He um, he had gone through uh, being the guitar player at Muscle Show Sound, the, the regular session guy, and had played with Lulu and, and uh, just a ton of really great artists and had done some great work. And then he had a downturn in his life. And he, uh, he had done a, a, an album uh, with a guy named Coleman, I forget, Jim Coleman. And uh, unfortunately, they had put a great deal of effort into it and uh, nothing came of it. And uh, the, uh, it, they'd even gone to London to put the London string section that had worked on the Beatles album on the record and en route on the plane, Eddie wrote the string parts. And, uh, and he, was ex- it, he was just devastated by the fact that nobody liked the record. They had apparently played it for Jerry Wexler and Jerry had turned him down, but Jerry didn't even remember them playing it for him. So uh, that was somewhat unusual because Jerry remembered everything. And, um, but anyway, that sent him into a tailspin and he, he really and truly had basically hit rock bottom. He had lived with his mother for a while had got into an argument with his stepfather, who was really one of the nicest guys you could ever possibly meet, and you wonder how in the world he could have, uh, they could have gotten into an argument. But anyway, Eddie left his mother's house and was en route to Nashville and ran out of money in Decatur. And he's on the, the bus stop bench at the Greyhound bus station in Decatur, and Johnny Walker drives by. And Johnny looks over and he thinks, that's Eddie Hinton. And it couldn't be. So he drives around the block. And it was Eddie Hinton. So he picks Eddie up. And Eddie literally doesn't have anything. And he takes Eddie to his house and he basically keeps him for a while. Um, Eddie, at this point in time, had six songs that had not been recorded, that had not even been demoed for that matter. And uh, there were a few other songs that had been demoed over the years that were floating around that still had not been released. So uh, Weicker goes to a friend of his, Owen Brown, and Owen has a studio in his garage at that time. And he calls it Birdland. And they go in and they cut what ostensibly is the demos for uh, a record, uh, looking to pitch the songs to other artists. But also, it could be a record. Well, nobody is interested in the songs. He's played, he, they play them to people in Muscle Shows. They play them to some people in Nashville. Nobody bites. So they decide to put the record out. And that's when they brought me into the situation. Uh, I came in uh, as usual with an undefined position, just you know, do whatever you can do, kind of a th- situation. And uh, at the time, I had a real good friend who was named Callie Oldby. Callie was uh, a radio uh, producer, disc jockey, entrepreneur in Sweden, and. Uh, in the Malmo uh, station for Swedish National Radio. 
And uh, he was very familiar with what Eddie had done at Muscle Shell Sound. So I sent uh, Callie a cassette copy of the record and asked him, can you please give me some suggestions of who might be interested in this for as a record deal? And so he sent me a list of five record labels. There were small labels, mostly in Sweden, one of them was in Germany, uh, that would be interested in would know who Eddie Hinton was and possibly interested in releasing the product. And we ended up selling it to the first two labels on the list. Uh, Almathea was the first one that was in Sweden, and uh, they put the record together, uh, did the cover design for it, and Calliope actually did the liner notes. Then we were able to take the successes that we had in Sweden and go to Lion Records in Germany. And uh, they actually got the uh, record out in five countries. So we had a, actually, no, they got it out in six countries, cause, but between the two labels, we had it out in seven European countries. Um, that gave Eddie a shot in the arm. Uh, uh, I guess I should talk about earlier, because uh, earlier he had had a record that had been done with Barry Beckett called Very Extremely Dangerous, which was on Capricorn, which was a great record. It should have done well, but unfortunately it didn't. And that was at a time when Capricorn uh, was having issues just, just before they collapsed the first time. And um, uh, they basically just you know, shelved the record and it didn't go anywhere. It came out and went straight to the discount bins. That's when he started really going downhill where he went and lived with his mother then ended up in Decatur. But uh, once Johnny got him, Johnny was a great promoter. He was a great inspirer of people and he inspired Eddie and Eddie began writing stuff and he later on did two more albums uh, for uh, Bullseye Blues, I believe. And, um, uh, but it, overall his story was rather tragic. and. Uh, he, uh, he never received the um, attention that he deserved by any means. He had his emotional problems. I had to get him out of jail one time for menacing Dean Jones, the Disney actor in The Love Bug. Um, he had a habit of uh, repetitive rhythms. He would, in this particular instance, he had found a stick and he was beating out a rhythm in the palm of his hand. And he had done this for two or three days. And he's walking through Decatur and he sees Dean Jones who has been in town, he's from Decatur originally, and he had been in Decatur to um, do a benefit show for the restoration of the Princess Theater. And he was checking out of the hotel. And so Eddie thinks, I bet he knows somebody that'd be interested in a, a script that he was writing. So he goes into the Holiday Inn and to talk to him, but he's got this stick in his hand and he's pounding this rhythm out in his other hand. And uh, Dean Jones's manager freaks out and calls the police and has him arrested for menacing. And so I had to go get him out of jail. But, uh, he, and it was just things like that that were just stumbling block after stumbling block. At one point, uh, Johnny and 
uh, borrowed some money from his cousin and bought a 12-foot travel trailer to let Eddie have a place to live. And we put it behind Wiker Hardware and ran a 100-foot extension cord into the building for power. Um, Eddie got a royalty check. It wasn't very big, but it was a royalty check. So he decides he's going to go have himself a steak dinner, and he comes to the trailer, and he goes in, and he's got a little small heater, and he changes clothes and gets spruced up, and he goes to uh, uh, dinner. And while he's in dinner, at dinner, uh, somehow uh, he's had a cigar, and it has fallen into the bedding and set the trailer on fire and burned it to the ground. And so he lost everything that he had. That, again, uh, before that he had lost, uh, he'd gone to uh, the chucker. Well, early, really early on in all this, Eddie and I had been taking, I mean, Johnny and I had been taking turns taking Eddie to gigs. And this one particular weekend, both of us, he had a gig at the chucker in Tuscaloosa, and both Johnny and I just really weren't up to it. I, I had something, I forget what it was, but something that seemed important, and so did Johnny. And we thought, how hard can it be? We'll put Eddie on the bus, and they'll pick him up in Tuscaloosa, and he'll go do the gig, and then they'll put him in a hotel overnight, take him to the bus the next morning, and he'll come home. But he doesn't show up for three days. And when he does show up, he doesn't have the Telecaster that Weicker had played on American Bandstand, nor does he have any of his clothes except the ones that he's wearing. He had gotten uh, into Birmingham where he had to change, uh, had a layover. He didn't have to change buses. He just had to stay on the bus for 30 minutes. But apparently, according to him, he'd gone across the street to get a cigar, and when he came back, the bus had left, and they never found his guitar or his clothes. So he walked from Birmingham. He hitchhiked. It took him three days to get back to Decatur. So these, all these weird setbacks just were more than he could take. And it really destroyed him as a human. Uh, we did some video with him, and uh, that was less than what we had hoped for. We, uh, uh, he ended up, like I say, uh, doing a couple of more albums for Owen Brown at, uh, at Birdland, that we and Weicker was a producer on those, but those were somewhat bizarre in their own right as well. I wasn't involved in those productions, so I don't have a lot of details on them. This was the sixth episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. Special thanks to Chimmy Nutt and the Nut House Recording Studio for hosting us. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. See you next week. <laughs>